Good morning and welcome to the first episode of Over the Bar on West Cork FM. Sean Holland is my name and for the next 30 minutes I'll be discussing all things sport. While life now isn't something that what we're used to, we're still lucky to be able to switch on our TVs and radios on the weekends and take in the theatre and drama that is live sport. Be it on the pitches of the Premier League, the lush green fairs of the PGA Tour or the winding tracks of the Formula 1. Sport is something that comes in all forms, for all nationalities and for all shapes and sizes. Having live sporty events means that any of us sports fans can have daily go-to conversation starters and connection points other than anything virus-related because I'm sure every one of us has exhausted those small talk conversations at this stage. So every Saturday morning here, you can just sit back, relax and listen as I discuss all things sport. I'll share my views and opinions on the weekend events and each week I'll be joined by an Irish sporting personality and ask them how they're coping with the difficulties and challenges that life brings about at the moment in their chosen field. To begin, we look back at last weekend's action, and what a weekend of sport it was. Whatever your interest, it seemed like there was something for everybody. There was soccer, rugby, horse racing, and golf. As the golf where I start today. So, the word normality. It's something that started to lose a bit of its meaning these days. Be it going to the shops, meeting up with friends or family, or even sitting down for a pint. It's something we're all looking forward to getting back to. So last weekend we were treated to a bit of a sporting normality. The return of a spring masters. As we know, it was around this time last year when the world came to a halt. And every sporty event around the globe was cancelled. And it was the first time actually that the masters was cancelled since World War II. However, as we, we became more accustomed to living with the virus, the masters was eventually held in November. With Dustin Johnson being the winner. So then it was last weekend where we returned to that sporting normality. And in what was a competitive four days action... It was Hideki Matsuyama of Japan that emerged victorious. Hideki, arguably prior to swinging a club this weekend, was Japan's most glorified man to walk the fairways. And after this weekend's win, it's really cemented that. Having won the best amateur title in the wake of the great Japanese earthquake of 2011, he became a source of national pride for Japan and was predicted for great things. And kind of like Sergio Garcia was for Spain, he could never find that elusive major win. Until last weekend, of course, and like Sergio, Hideki managed to secure his first major at Augusta. However, even though he started today with a four-shot lead, and while at one stage was a six-shot lead, he didn't have it all his own way. This was pretty much down to his risk-reward side of play. There was a cluster of golfers already to pounce had Hideki faltered, and he'd shown signs of faltering coming down the back nine, but luck was on his side. His risk-reward side of play had him in trouble and the two par fives. The biggest mistake was shooting over the green on 15 and finding the water. And his playing partner, Xander Schauffele, was breathing down his neck. And going on to the iconic 16th tee, there was only a two-shot gap between the last two players. The 16th tee shot is one that's quite intimidating. There's water to the left, bunkers to the right, and a gallery of onlookers surrounding the hole. It's nature's very own amphitheatre and causes even the best of players to crumble under the pressure. And that's exactly what it did. After just getting back into contention, it was Shoffley who cracked and put his ball into the water, eventually coming out with a triple bogey. And it was like all of Japan took a collective sigh of relief. Hideki pretty much then cruised home to victory, becoming the first Asian bar player to win a major and Japan's first major winner. And one can only wonder what this win will do for the sport of golf in Asia. His is a victory that reverberate far around the exclusive corner of Georgia. Positive impacts for golf as a whole, it can only be hoped, will follow. 
and a nation that has long developed an affinity with the sport finally has its idol. And like the successes at home here of Padraig Harrington, Shane Lowry and Rory McIlroy, one wonders will there be emergence of golfers from the land of the rising sun into the future. That's something we can only wait and see. Next, while others were absorbed by the calmness and the tranquility of the masters, there was an equal intrigue in the robust rough and tumble of the Heineken Champions Cup quarterfinals. Unfortunately, there was no red and monster to cheer on, so it was a neutral view for most of us West Cork rugby enthusiasts. And without argument, the most anticipated quarterfinal of them all, before even a ball was kicked, would be the most notable clash of Leinster and last year's champions, Exeter. Two giants of the European game went head-to-head on Saturday in Sandy Park, and last year's champions, Exeter, went into a quick and early 14-point lead. And it looked like the Leinster boys had come across the water unprepared, untested and unable to compete with the Premiership's top side. But that didn't last for long, as Leinster grew into the game phase by phase and quickly ate up the 14-point deficit, even with ever-influential and experienced Johnny Sexton having to go off with another head injury. And it was Ross Byrne, his replacement, that came in, stepped in and played brilliantly, controlling the tempo of the game and having the ability to kick the points when asked to do so. Taking their chances when they had them were key to Leinster's victory, as they constantly kept their opponents at arm's length, eventually coming out as 34, 22-point victors. And there's no debate now that Leinster are the favourites for the title. They will, however, face a familiar face in the semi-final in Ron O'Gara's La Rochelle, who themselves overcame English opposition, disposing of sail sharks fairly easily, and will definitely pose a real threat to Leinster. O'Gara's KBA approach, keep ball alive, is something that's extremely enjoyable to watch and shows how he's incorporated what he's learned having coached the Crusaders in New Zealand. In the other semi, you'll have Toulouse, who overcame Clermont, and Bordeaux, who beat a depleted Racing 92 team. Both teams managed to get over the line without scoring a single try, and it's fair to say that both will need to up their performances should they be looking to reach the pinnacle of European knockout rugby. Finally, the Irish women's team started off their Six Nations campaign with a victory away to Wales. In what was a clinical performance from Ireland, they were eventual 45 points to nil winners, and is a huge win for an Ireland team that hasn't played since last October. Following on from that triumphant showing for the Irish women, we also had this. And it is Medella Times who is keeping up the gallop towards the line. Medella Times, Rachel Blackmore raises the bar still higher. Yes, of course, that's Rachel Blackmore riding Manila Times to becoming the first female winner of the English Grand National. Continuing on from her incredible success in Cheltenham and really cementing herself as one of the best jockeys out there in horse racing today. When she was interviewed by TV after the race, Rachel said, I don't feel male or female right now. I don't even feel human. It's unbelievable. And there's no doubting that, Rachel. Now, while we're on the topic of very successful Irish sportswomen, I'm delighted to be joined by two West Cork's very own international superstars, sisters Joan and Phil Healy. Joan, Phil, thanks for joining me. Phil, you're currently calling us from the sunny Mediterranean from a warm weather camp. How is that going for you? Yeah, everything is going really well. So I'm over in Spain at the moment and I'm very fortunate to um, have the opportunity to be able to travel and have the exemptions to travel. So I'm here for four weeks. Um, I have two weeks done and I have two weeks to go. And I got the opportunity to race as well last weekend because races are going to be very far and few between in Ireland under the restrictions. So... um. We are in a very safe environment here um, and everything is going to plan. So I'm looking forward to the next two weeks and uh, racing again at the end of the camp. 
Fantastic. And that's it's probably something you have to do is think outside the box these days for training sessions since the pandemic. And the warm weather camp is as good as it gets, to be honest, Phil. And because you, you need those tracks and you need those gyms to keep pace with your competition. And um, Joan, did you have any unique training ideas over the last few months? Um, well, I suppose we've been a little tied here in terms of, you know, the use of gyms and, and the use of tracks. Um, but luckily enough, you know, being an elite athlete, um, I have an exemption to train. So we get to use the Leave Out Clubhouse. Um, we have a little bit of access to the tracks, but it's not open at the weekend. So that's when we need to get a bit more creative with what we're doing and, and where we're training um, to get the sessions in. So it's not as straightforward as what. Um, it would usually be in terms of, you know, rocking up the track whenever you, whenever you want, whenever you need to do your next session. Um, so that has um, definitely um, forced us to get a little creative and think outside the box. Yeah, and you, you need that kind of uh, intuition and inventiveness these days. And so I'll take you back a few years now, back to the start. Joan, it was you who trailblazed into the athletics route. And um, how was it you originally got into sprinting? So it all started really um, at school sports days when um, Johnny Caulfield um, encouraged me to join um, Bandon Athletic Club. I was winning um, a lot of the school sports days. So he told me to head into the athletic club and I went in there one Tuesday evening and um, the following Sunday I found myself down in Castle Island at the Monster Juveniles. Um, I made it through to the final, but I came dead last. Um, but and from then on, then I said that, you know, that was never going to happen again. So I, I trained for the year and I went out the following year and I won it and I made my way to the All-Irelands and I won those as well. And that's pretty much where it all began and started from the age of 15 um, at international competition. Fantastic. And I, I suppose that's what's quite unique about your careers, that without Joan getting into athletics, Phil, you might never have gone down that line. And same goes for you, Joan. With Phil continuing to succeed, it's probably motivated you to keep that love and drive for the sport. I'll probably come to you on that first, Phil. Hundred percent. And like when we joined the athletic club, like Joan was um, the main reason that we went, and like the athletic club was abandoned, so that wouldn't have been our main group of friends. So um, I was more so keeping Joan company and like tagging along and going for the crack and just um, having fun, trying different events and different things like that. But I was doing um, soccer, football, camogie, everything. Um, right through the years um, until fifth year of school. And, like, I certainly wasn't um, anywhere as near as good as Joan was. And, like, Joan was going to internationals and um, European youths and different things like that. So, like, she certainly was um, trailblazing, as you said. And she was always known as the runner, and I was more so following in her footsteps. But um, during the tough few years, then with injury, um, as we were both getting older and, I made a breakthrough um, when I was about 18 and continued on. So certainly, um, if it wasn't for Joan in the sport, I wouldn't have been doing it and continuing on and then vice versa when Joan was going through the, the hard times after having a really successful career um, through the junior ranks. Um, I was there to, to pull her through then as well. Yeah, and I suppose I'll come to you next then on that, Joan. Seeing Phil succeed lately, it's probably motivated you to keep that love and drive for it and keep running. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, as Phil said, yeah, I was just, I was the runner in the house um, in my teens, um, right up to about the age of 20. Um, and I had a lot of success. And 
I had a lot of experience going to various international competitions, but when it came then to, I suppose when I, when I started college and I was trying to make the transition from a junior athlete to a senior athlete, um, I picked up a lot of injuries, a few bad ones that kept me out of the sport for, for quite a while. But I suppose, you know, filming had breakthrough then when I was um, suffering with all those injuries. And I suppose, you know, I often thought of walking away from the sport um, a lot of times. Um, because it was just one injury after the other but seeing Phil break through and seeing how well she was doing um, it definitely encouraged me to keep going because you know watching her it would have been very difficult to walk away from the sport especially seeing how well she was doing and it was a sport that I still loved and I still wanted to continue and I still wanted to see if there was if there was more there. Yeah, and I suppose on that as well, John, how you mentioned about the injuries, um, was there ever the thought of coming, when you're about 23, 24, you're coming out of college or after a few of them injuries, was there ever that thought of stopping the athletics and just concentrating on the teaching or maybe on the contrary, re- rehabbing from the injuries and pursuing the athletics career and maybe going down Phil's line and continuing your education? Yeah, I suppose it was a hard one at the time, really, because um, when I was in probably second or third year of college, that's when I was getting my really bad injuries, um, so I suppose I was focusing more on the teaching side of things and focusing towards getting a job. Then when I was leaving college, I was starting to come back on the track, um, starting to see some speed return. But I suppose at that stage, you know, um, it, the costs were piling up in terms of physios and trying to do all the rehab. So I did need to go and, and get a job. Um, but I suppose if I had a similar um experience through college that Phil had I probably would have taken the same route and continued with college and, and become um a full-time athlete but unfortunately that wasn't a choice that I could make at the time it seems to have worked out for you in the best though in the long run and um Phil uh, of course you've reached the heights of Irish sprinting you hold national records and you've won national titles <clears throat> but would it be fair to say you most came into the public eye running a race that you aren't even supposed to be competing in that being the Irish Intervarsities 4x400 in 2016? 100%. And that was a weekend where I was competing for UCC and I had uh, ran the 100 and 200 and I had won both events. But um, we had decided to um, just dip the toe in the 400 and do it by doing it in the relay. So like no one would really take any notice and there is no pressure and you just slot in. But it certainly didn't go under the radar um, as we had planned to do. And... Uh, it went viral and uh, it all blew up and it had something like 48 million views on Good Morning America and it appeared uh, across so many different um, channels and it, the whole thing was a bit mad and what everyone took from it and it's still a video that keeps resurfacing um, to this day but it that race um, showed us the, the potential that we could have um, over 400 and it was the turning point in terms of, of exploring the event more and pushing training towards um that side of things so it certainly wasn't under the radar but it was a good opportunity to uh realize that the potential that was there in that event yeah and of course that success in the 400 brought you most recently to compete in the european indoors in poland and phil of course you came out with the fourth place finish in the 400 meters were you disappointed in not getting bronze or is it literally that you couldn't have given any more running a pb in the final No, I was absolutely thrilled with the fourth place, like a fourth in Europe, um, running a PB on my third race in 36 hours. And I don't think people like um, 
like the certain point of underestimating what it takes to actually come out three times in that short space of time and nervous energy and just coming down from one race and having to rise again for the next race but um 400 takes a lot of work and like I've learned in many um major championships along the way like in 2019 was when I was at European Indoors I went in ranked in the same position as I did in um 20 this year 2021 um but I messed up the first round and when you mess up the first round, it um, may not give you the best of lane draws for the semi, and that's where you're on the back foot then. But um, no, this championship um, winter plan, it was about navigating through the rounds, and I was thrilled to come out with um four-place finish. Yes, it was so close to the medals, but it keeps that hunger going, and I produced a PB on the third race, and that's the best I've ever ran. So to walk away from European final, having run my best time that I've ever done, I have to be happy. Yeah, you couldn't really ask for a lot more. And I suppose next to you, John, you competed there too. And I know you being the ever competitive person you are, it probably didn't go as well for you. But it has to be put into perspective, I suppose. Like on the Monday and Tuesday, you're teaching the Mokanee, look, and reciting on Spalpeen Faunach. And then on Sunday, you're expected to run a seven-second 60 metres against the best in Europe. So how did you find the experience and what did you take from it? Um, yeah, absolutely. Like I, you know, anytime you get to go to an international competition, represent your country, um, it's always a great experience. Um, but look, not to to be honest, you know, I um, I was really disappointed with the performance. Um, it was well off my best, um, but I didn't have the preparation leading up to Europeans that I would have liked. Um, in September, I picked up a foot injury, and that forced me off the track for somewhere between eight to twelve weeks and I had to make up that missed track work um on a bike but you know nothing can replicate the work that you can do on the track and especially with sixty meters you're just not going to get away with that. Sixty is pretty much a, a Hail Mary run and if you if you can't get out of the block fast enough, um you're kinda left there really and I was just missing that sharpness and that, that usual great sharpness that I would usually come into a championship with at, at that stage. Um, so yes, look, it was it was disappointing, but at the same time, you know, it was great to be able to, to have the race, especially in the times that we were in, and it was great to be able to, to travel. Yeah, and I suppose it's the way that probably to the casual athletics viewer and not make a semi-final or a final might be seen as a disappointment, but for someone like you who is a day-to-day profession, to be at that level alone is an incredible achievement considering the time and effort and sacrifice it takes to make those championships absolutely yeah it's not it's not easy having a full-time job and and trying to put down the same training that you know the people that you're lining up against the majority of them are full-time athletes and you're trying to replicate the same kind of training load as, as they are but look i'm i'm an incredibly competitive person so you know i don't i don't want to go out there and just be on the team be another name on the team or you know, another another member of a relay panel or, or whatever the event is going to be. You know, I want to go out there and I want to produce my best performances. And I suppose when one of your team members is, is your sister and she's producing the best performance of the team, you know, you obviously, you know, you obviously want to do just just as well and um, and produce a good performance. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it was a great experience. And, you know, I learned a lot in the, in the run-up um, to the championships in terms of, you know, things that, you know, can be done, you know, if you if you don't get the opportunity to, to be on the track all the time. Um, so that is definitely worth some of my favourite for the future. 
there's no doubt about that. And um, I suppose for both of you, this kind of question, how would you both find competing without any fans in the stadium? So uh, obviously your family uh, follow you everywhere to all corners of the globe and they're great at support. But would you miss the aspect of even having friends or family with you in the stadium or even the noise of the stadium? Phil, I'll probably come to you in that. Yeah, it's definitely something that is missed and like atmosphere in the stadium makes a massive difference and especially when it's an indoor arena um, the noise levels are a lot louder and even just walking out onto the track and hearing the, the roars from the crowd and especially when it's a, a championship closer to home there's a lot more Irish um, there and it's great to have that support so it's certainly something that is um, missed and it's a, an extra bonus having spectators but look, as athletes and as competitors we will take having the championships um, going ahead under the, the conditions and circumstances that they are at the moment over having spectators. So it is unfortunate, but we just have to kind of get on with it at the same time. But uh, hopefully in the future, uh, it won't be long before uh, spectators are back again and um, that family and friends can, can come to watch as well. I suppose you, you'd probably echo those views as well, John. Absolutely. I mean, hearing that buzz when you when you come out um, onto the track, you, you'll always find an extra few percent in your performance, um, and it's always great to hear. And it's you know, it's what you remember about about a championship. You know, that, that feeling of when you walk out and and what you hear. Um, but like Phil said, you know, we were just glad to be able to get some races, um, and to be able to travel. And you know, there's lots of athletes back here at home that haven't had the opportunity to race yet so we were incredibly lucky to be able to have that opportunity um and you know it will you know the time will come again when when we'll have fans back in the stadium and family and friends will be able to travel yeah and probably one of the biggest things about uh this year in terms of running is probably everyone's looking towards tokyo and uh phil yeah, you will have the option of competing in the 200. You have qualified for the 200 and there's the possibility of running the 400. Will you be looking to compete in one or both? Or is that a decision yourself and your coach Shane will make over the summer? Yeah, so the primary focus will be the 200 and they have changed the qualification system for Olympics. So if you look at, say, 2016 and 2012 Olympics, um, going on the standards that they had for those um championships I would have had the official standard um plenty of time so far but they have really lowered the standards um, and made them much harder but they have made it a ranking system as well so it takes your five best times um, and different competitions are worth different points and there's bonus points added to to some competitions so it's about getting into the right race in the right environment um, and as I said the 200 will be the focus for the 400 I still have to do three more races outdoor it's, it's a small window at the moment to race and there is um, few and far races um, on the horizon. So, look, if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But the 200 will always be the focus. And we even have world relays at the start of May um, coming up. So I'll be competing in the four, mixed 4x4 four four relay team and Joan will be competing in the uh, women's 4x1 team. So that's another opportunity for uh, both relays to qualify for Tokyo. And... Um, it's something that there is great potential for both teams to qualify. So anything can happen again in a relay. Um, so fingers crossed that uh, it does go to plan. So your your uh, ticket is booked for uh, Tokyo. And John, you're looking to, to get on the plane as well. Uh, and with no 60 metres in the Olympics, as Phil mentioned there, it's the 4 by 100 metre relay. That'll be your aim. And I suppose in a couple of weeks in the world relays, that'll be um, essential to try and qualify there. 
yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're back to Poland again. Um, going to be a tough act, but you know, there's a good group of girls there, and I know everyone will put in their their best performance. So it's going to be the top eight from from World Relays, which will qualify for um for the Olympics in both the four by one and and um and the others. So hopefully, look, you know, that we can put a good performance together um and get a good time and make a qualification and as well as Olympic qualification, um, it also gives us the opportunity to qualify for the for the World Championships in, in Oregon next year. Perfect. And I wish you all the best with that and hope to see you flying the flag for West Cork in Tokyo come the end of the year. So, Joan, Phil, thanks very much for joining me on Over the Bar. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks a million, Sean, for having us on. Thanks a million, Sean. So, looking forward to this weekend, we have the return of the FA Cup. And later on today, Man City will face Chelsea in what should be a very entertaining clash of two teams who booked their places in the semi-finals of the Champions League during the week. Then on Sunday, Leicester will play Southampton. This weekend, the FA are also allowing fans attend games at Wembley, with 4,000 tickets going for each game. 2,000 going to the NHF staff and frontline workers, which is indeed a lovely gesture. And it's the FA's plan to hopefully have 20,000 fans in Wembley for the final. And personally, I'm looking forward to the authentic crowd noise because, arguably, I feel of all sports, it's football that's missing the fans the most. Of course, we saw patrons in Augusta last weekend and seeing the difference that makes, but having fans back at football matches is key to bring that extra bit of excitement and drama from within the stadium. So, with the FA Cup, there's also the return of the Premier League and those final relegation and Champions League qualification spots are looming and it's sure to be another fascinating weekend. Now, moving away from football, we also have the return of the F1 Grand Prix to look forward to. This weekend, the F1 heads to Italy for the Pirelli Imalia Romagna Grand Prix, or the Imola Grand Prix. Now, Formula 1 is something that's taken a stride forward in the public eye recently, most notably down to the success of the Netflix documentary series Drive to Survive. And I'd say I can speak on behalf of anyone on a Netflix account that it's absolutely worth a watch, no matter what your interest is in motorsport. But most of all, it's brought back an intrigue in what wasn't there previously. What Drive to Survive did was give an insight into every team and the grid and gave us an understanding of different team goals and objectives throughout the season. So rather than just keep an eye on the big dogs like Mercedes, Red Bull and Ferrari, we know of an interest in the likes of Haas, Alpine and Alfa Tauri. And whereas before we might only have known about drivers like Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel, we are now keen to see the development of names like Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz and George Russell. The series really helped highlight the life of the different drivers and really put a face and a story to their names. And the proof is there too that the sport is expanding and growing globally, with Sky Sports even announcing that the opening Grand Prix this year in Bahrain recorded its highest ever viewing figures for a Grand Prix aired on its channels. And it's a sure sign that Formula 1 is making a comeback and is definitely a must-see this weekend. So that's it from me this morning. Thanks very much for tuning in to Over the Bar. I've been Sean Holland and you're listening to West Cork FM. <laughs>